Well, let me uh, say a prayer for us as we uh, get ready to look into God's Word today. Lord, thank you for your Word, and thank you for the instruction and the insight and the wisdom that we can receive from it. And we just want to commit this time to you now, and I pray you'd be preparing our hearts for what is to come a little bit later on. And we submit to the work of your Holy Spirit in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wonder what you love about the church. I heard a quote years ago that stuck with me. I think about it often, and it's about the church. If you've been around here for a while, you've probably heard me repeat it. There's nothing quite like the local church when it's working right, when it's working right. And I believe that when the, when the church is working like it's supposed to, when the church is functioning like Jesus designed it to, it's truly something to behold. When the members of the body are all present and accounted for and everybody's functioning like they were designed to function, when everybody's using their gifts joyfully and gladly, using their gifts to build up and to bless the whole body of Christ, when we're all loving each other and serving one another, when we're growing deeper in our faith and growing in maturity and, and growing in our love for the Lord, for each other, for our families, for our neighbors, for the world. When all of that is happening, it is a thing of beauty. It's a pastor's dream. And more than that, and, and most importantly, it brings a smile to Jesus' face because it's Jesus' church, right? When the body of Christ is working right, think about it, wonderful things happen. Lost people become found people. Guilty people find forgiveness. Lonely people get enfolded into the fellowship of believers. When the church is working right, wounded people experience healing and broken people are made whole in Christ. When the church is working like it should, addicted people find freedom. Hopeless people are pulled out of that pit of despair. Outcasts find a place of belonging and a place to feel accepted. Believers grow deeper in their faith. Children are guided in the way of Christ. When the church is working right, people discover their purpose and their calling in life. Missionaries get identified and equipped and sent out and supported. Neighbors get loved into the kingdom of God. The gospel of Jesus advances in the city and around the world when the church is working right. When the body of Christ is healthy and vibrant. By the way, technically speaking, church is not a place you go to. Church is what we are. That's theologically speaking. We are the church. And so in our study of the book of Romans that we've been in for about nine months, that we will finish in about a month from now, at the end of June, we find ourselves coming into a new section in chapter 14, in Romans 14, where the, the Apostle Paul identifies and exposes two, two attitudes that can be found at times in the church. Two attitudes that church members can have that, that if they're left unchecked, will keep the church from working right. These two attitudes, if they're present in a church and they're not dealt with, will be like infectious diseases that spread throughout the whole body and 
critically impair the health and growth and vitality of a church. And evidently, Paul, the apostle who wrote the letter to the Romans, had heard that these two attitudes were present in that church there that he was writing to. And the members who had these attitudes, he knew they were out of line. They were not in accord with the gospel of grace that they would have claimed to believe. And so Paul aims to address this matter with them in Romans chapter 14. So I'm going to read our passage for today. And and as I do, see if you can pick up on these two destructive attitudes that Paul kind of has in his crosshairs in this section, okay? So listen as I read from the NIV, Romans 14, beginning in verse 1. And he wrote this, Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. This is the word of the Lord. As I read that, were you able to identify those two harmful, hurtful attitudes? They're paired up in verse 3. Did you see it? The man who eats everything must not, what? Look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. So there they are, two toxic attitudes in the church, looking down on people and condemning people, looking down on people with disdain. We call that being condescending, right? Feeling superior to those poor, immature souls whose conscience is so sensitive that they just can't do some of the things that I myself feel the freedom to do. And then on the flip side, this attitude of condemnation, of judging, of writing off as unspiritual those who are obviously abusing their freedom in Christ and doing stuff that good Christian people should not do. So condescension and condemnation. I wonder if you've ever come across these two attitudes in the church, not this church of course, but some other church that you were in. Paul's saying here that these attitudes, if they are not exposed and dealt with, will suck the life right out of a church. They're deadly. They're ungodly. Church members who have a condescending attitude towards their brother or sister are hurting the church, he says. And church members who have a condemning attitude, a critical attitude towards others, are also hurting the church. 
And Paul says what these attitudes reveal is a lack of understanding of a key truth of the gospel. And in this section, he's contending that that division in the church is at its core a gospel issue. And I would contend that all issues in the church have at their core a gospel issue. And so what is the, the gospel truth that's being missed in a church where the members are being critical of each other and looking down on each other? And it's simply this. Every single Christian believer has his or her own unique relationship with God. And Jesus is the Lord of each and every one of his people. Whether we have a conscience that allows us the freedom to engage in certain activities or whether we have a conscience that draws narrower lines for us. Now you notice this. What's in view here in this chapter specifically is what Paul refers to in verse 1 as disputable matters. Did you see that? Disputable matters. Did you know, are you aware that in Christian circles, in the Christian experience, there are disputable matters? There are issues that good, Jesus-loving, evangelical Christian people disagree about and debate over. And these have been called gray areas. Paul calls them disputable matters. I'm going to call them gray areas. The reason they're called that is because the scriptures don't specifically now, specifically talk about or address them. Now, I know that just for some of you, just hearing me say that phrase, gray areas, makes you stiffen up a little bit because you are a black and white type person and you don't even believe in gray areas. In your mind, there is no such thing as gray areas. You even cringe when you walk into a room where the walls are painted gray. It just bothers you because you're a person where to every... Everything is black and white to you. Everything is right or wrong, good or evil, righteous or sinful for everyone, period. And every position you take on an issue in your mind is worth going to the mat for. But I would say to you, if you're a black and white type person where everything's black and white, you're going to have a hard time grappling with Romans 14 and 15. Because that's the whole premise here, that there are indeed disputable matters. There are gray area issues that good and godly Christians even disagree on. And even though two Christians in a church may take polar opposite positions on these issues, Paul says the Lord will accept them both. And he explains why. Now I do want to be clear, without question, let's note, there is black and white in the Bible. There are certain behaviors that are undeniably, certifiably, always wrong for everyone, everywhere, in every generation. There are ethical standards of behavior. There are moral absolutes that come to us from outside of ourselves. They come to us from our Creator God. And everyone is bound to obey them, whether they agree with them or not, whether they like them or not. There is black and white in Scripture, but listen, not everything is black and white. There is some gray. Paul does say here that there are disputable matters, debatable practices that are not specifically addressed in God's Word. As a result, true believers, followers of Jesus, disagree on some of these things. And we need to learn to think about these issues in a mature way, right? That enables us to still love each other even though we might hold different convictions about something. 
That's what's going to contribute to the health of the body of Christ and not detract from it. And so I think I would like to take a moment, because it fits here, to give you a time-tested grid, a way to think about these things that I believe is biblical. I call it the three bins. It's been a while since I've talked about this. The three bins that give us three categories in which we can place different issues. So the three bins or containers, you might say, are absolutes, convictions, and preferences. Some things are absolutes, some things are convictions, and some things are preferences. So absolutes, right? These are matters that are crystal clear in the Bible. Crystal clear. Like evangelical Christians don't even debate on these things. They're just clear. These are the hills to die on. Absolute issues are issues that are applicable to everybody, everywhere. These are things you fight for in the church. Like we've got to cling to these things. Even to the point of separating from those who deny these absolutes. Because if you deny these, you deny Jesus. There are absolutes. But there are also areas where we need to form convictions. These are the gray area matters. Usually cultural issues that we grapple with. These are not crystal clear in the Bible. And when it comes to, to these gray areas, what we've got to do as believers is form personal convictions about them based on scriptural principles. Scripture doesn't address them specifically, but Scripture does give us principles that we can apply to making our choices about these matters. When it comes to convictions, we apply these to who? To ourselves, and if we're the head of our household, maybe to our families as well, to those little ones that we're bringing up in our families. We can apply our convictions there. These are not hills to die on. These are things we might argue about or debate over. And when you form a conviction in your own heart and mind, something you believe is right for you in your relationship with God, if you go against that conviction, if you violate your own conscience, then, then you have sinned. Or I have sinned in that case. It's sin for me to do that. I would also contend that there may be situations where churches can apply these certain convictions to church leaders in the church. Because as scripture says, leaders are judged by what? A higher standard, a stricter standard. So you following me here? Absolutes, some things belong in that bin. Convictions, some things belong in that bin. And then preferences. I mean, just... just Things that you prefer, right? Scripture is silent on these things. Someone might say, I like, I like purple, or I like the reds, or I like Italian food, or whatnot. That's not right or wrong, that's just your preference, right? It's your taste. These you apply to who? Everybody, right? Everybody ought to be a Cubs fan, that's how I feel about things. No, we just we apply our preferences to ourselves. If you try to convert others to your preference, that's usually unfruitful. Again, not a matter of right and wrong here. Lots of variations. So whether you agree with this grid or not, do you, do you understand it? Absolutes, convictions, preferences, three different kinds of issues. Placing issues in the right bin is critical, I think. This has been so helpful to me through the years in terms of how to think about things. And I always ask myself, which bin is this in? What kind of an issue am I dealing with here? And I really believe that some of the interpersonal conflicts in the church result from bin confusion. Like, brother, 
I think you've got that in the wrong bin. <laughs> You're treating that as an absolute when really it's a gray area conviction, wouldn't you agree? And so we've got to get clear on this. Now what Paul is talking about in Romans 14 in the first part of chapter 15 fit into that center bin, gray areas in which we need to form convictions. We're not talking about black and white issues here in this section. We're not talking about absolutes that are true and binding on every single believer. We're not talking about lying, stealing, cheating, getting drunk, committing adultery. Those are crystal clear. Those are black and white issues in the Bible. We're not talking about those kinds of things. We're talking about gray areas, disputable matters, certain cultural practices that followers of Jesus have different opinions about. Some feel the freedom to participate in those things without their conscience bothering them, without sinning. Others in the church don't feel like they have that freedom. And that for them, in order to be pleasing to God, they need to abstain. Now, back in that day, back in Paul's day, the gray area issues that seem to be dividing believers in the church included three D's, okay? Diet, days, and drinking. Let's talk about these for a moment. Diet, and we see this in, ch in uh, chapter 14, verse 2 here, right? One man's faith allows him to eat everything. But another man, whose faith is weak, eats only vegetables. So he's talking about diet choices here. And evidently, some church members believed that they were free to eat anything. They were even free to eat meat that they purchased in the market when it's possible that that meat had previously been offered to an idol in a pagan ceremony. And, of course, idols can't eat anything because they're not real. They're false gods, and so you had to do something with the meat. So they would then take that meat that had been offered to an idol, and they would sell it in the market. And there were some Christians in that church who would purchase that meat and eat it. Didn't bother them a bit. They enjoyed it. Grease was running down their face. It's like, this is good stuff, right? They thank God for it, it says, with grateful hearts. Zero feelings of guilt. The conscience didn't bother them. But there were other members in the church who didn't feel that way. They didn't feel like they had that same freedom, maybe because of the background that they came out of. Maybe they had participated in those pagan ceremonies. And so they chose to abstain from eating any meat, lest they might inadvertently eat some of that meat that had been offered to idols and find out about it later. This, is not about, this was not about nutrition. These were spiritual reasons here. It was about protecting their relationship with God and honoring God. So for those people, to eat meat would have violated their conscience. They would have felt like they were sinning if they had eaten meat. And so they believed the Lord was pleased with their abstaining, their restraint, and they became vegetarians. So that was one issue that was, they were grappling with in the church of that day, their diet. Second were days, special feast days. Verse 5, one man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So evidently, there were some church members, probably Jewish people who'd been converted to Christianity, converted to Christ, who believed that even though they were now Christians, they should still continue observing those special Jewish feast days that had been prescribed for the Jews centuries earlier. 
I mean, there are people that observe those special days for, for millennia, right? Their conscience bound them to do so. And if they didn't, they would have felt guilty. They would have felt like they were displeasing God. But there were others in the church, likely Gentile converts, who didn't see a need for that. It was not a part of their heritage. It wasn't a part of their lifestyle. And so observing these traditional Jewish holidays held no obligation for them. And so in a congregation that was mixed, that had both Jewish converts to Christianity and Gentile converts to Christianity, this, this became an issue. And the, the different groups were at odds with each other on, on you know, observing these days. They didn't share the same convictions. Those who did choose to observe the special feast days looked down on those who didn't, saw them as unspiritual, and those who saw all the days as being equal couldn't understand why the others were being so rigid and legalistic about it. I mean, they're thinking, you know, every day with Jesus is feast day. (laughs) Every day with Jesus is a feast day, a festival day, right? I mean, so that was an issue. Observing special days. And then the third D, diet days, the third one we find out about a little bit later in this chapter was drinking alcohol. It's mentioned in verse 21, where we get to next week. It says, it is, it is good, Paul wrote, not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And so again, evidently there were some church members who had the freedom of conscience to, to drink wine to the glory of God. And they saw the fruit of the vine as one of God's gifts. But there were others who felt it would be sinful for them to drink any alcoholic beverage. So they abstained. So these three D's were apparently the primary gray area issues or disputable matters of that day. Now how about in our day? Are there any gray area issues that Christians in our day wrestle with? That even gospel-centered Christians have differing opinions about. What do you think? How about uh, watching Game of Thrones? Some Christian people love that show. I've talked to them. They love that show. It doesn't bother their conscience one bit to watch it. They don't think the Lord is displeased with them for that. Others... Don't think any Christian who loved Jesus loves Jesus ought to watch that show. How about getting a tattoo? What about vaping? How about going to R-rated movies? How about having HBO in your home? How about homeschooling? I mean, all real Christians homeschool their kids, right? How about playing the lottery? How about going to a casino? How about social drinking? A while back, there was a family here in this church who decided to leave the church, leave New Life, because I did not condemn from the pulpit here, I didn't condemn any and all drinking as being sinful for all Christians. Now, growing up Baptist, I got to tell you, that was kind of hard to take. (laughs) Followers of Jesus have debated that issue for millennia. Is it okay to feel superior to that Christian gal and think she's a worldly Christian if she drinks and you don't? Or should you feel like a second-class Christian if you don't homeschool, but the other parents in your small group all do? 
Or should you wear long sleeve shirts and turtlenecks even in July to cover up your tattoos so that others won't look down on you and judge you as unspiritual? Or if you found out that your Christian friend actually watched the Game of Thrones finale and missed work the next day because of it, (laughs) would you automatically consign them to the ranks of the ungodly who need to repent? Yes, there were disputable matters back in the first century and there are disputable matters in the 21st century in the church today. Matters of lifestyle choices, right? And practice that Jesus-loving people disagree on. You know, Paul ached for the church to work right. More importantly, Jesus wants his body to be healthy and he wants to eradicate the infectious diseases that can ravage the body of Christ and suck the vitality right out of it. God's word calls us as followers of Jesus to grow in godly discernment in this area, to grow in maturity in dealing with these debatable matters. And especially God's word calls us to what? To love one another. To love one another. In fact, that's really the overarching theme of this whole section. From Romans 14 verse 1 all the way through 15 verse 13. The theme is loving each other despite our differences. Which is really when love is tested, right? When we discover differences between us. And so for members of Jesus' church who share his love for the church and who wanted to work right. Who want to contribute to its health. For Christian people who want to grow in maturity and learn to love their fellow believers better. I want to draw out from this section several principles for maturing in love. That I think will help us. And we're going to look at these in more detail in the next several weeks. So for now I'm just going to lay them out briefly and kind of survey them, okay? But as I do, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask you to put a check mark next to any of these seven principles that you sense the Holy Spirit wants you to give more attention to in your life to help you grow and mature, okay? So here we go. Here's the first one. I'll call it the principle of individual evaluation. Individual evaluation. And what that principle tells us is this. Every church member is primarily accountable for their lifestyle choices, not to other people, but to who? To God, to their Lord. Where do you get that? From that phrase that says, to his own master he stands or falls. Would you say that with me? To his own master he stands or falls. You see, it doesn't ultimately fall to me to judge your level of closeness to the Lord in what choices you make in gray areas. Not to judge you. To judge means to render a verdict, right? Like you're unspiritual for doing that. It's not that we're not supposed to watch out for each other. It's not that we're not supposed to to look out for one another and even warn one another at times. That is holy and right. But this is talking about rendering judgment on people who who don't have your convictions. And what Paul tells us here is that all of us are going to individually stand before the Lord one day. I'm going to stand, I fully expect to stand before my Lord and Master Jesus one day where he will evaluate my choices that I made in gray area issues. I stand or fall before my Lord and you do as well. Principle of individual 
evaluation from God. Second principle I, I think we can draw out of this passage is, is the principle of personal application. Personal application. Because what that tells us is that every believer should form their own personal convictions in these gray area matters and then apply those convictions primarily to themselves, right? Not to others. Now, we're prone to do that, I, I sense, as human beings. I know I am. To hold other people accountable for living up to my standards. You know, how many people walk around with this notion in their minds of, you know, why aren't you more like me? <laughs> you know, why can't you be normal like I am? We're prone to do that, but the truth is we get into trouble when we start expecting other people to abide by our convictions. Does that make sense? Where do you get this principle, Steve? From the phrase where it says, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Form your conviction for yourself. Later on, he's going to reinforce that same point. He's going to write this. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Now, he's not talking about not sharing your faith with unbelievers. We know where to do that, right? He's talking about your, your belief about this particular conviction. It's between you and God. Not to be enforced on everybody else, you know. So, the principle of personal application. Personal application. Apply it to yourself. Third one, I couldn't think of a good phrase, so here's what I came up with. The principle of inappropriate usurping. Inappropriate usurping. Right in the middle of this section, Paul says, Who are you? to judge somebody else's servant. You see that? Who are you to judge someone else's servant? I think what he's saying is every follower of Jesus should cultivate a fear of playing God in the lives of other people. I mean, who's the judge? God is the only one with the right to judge, the only one with the right to render a verdict about someone's spirituality. That's God's job, right? But you've heard the little sentence that people say sometimes, hey, you're trying to be the Holy Spirit with that person. You ever had somebody say that to you? You're trying to be the Holy Spirit with them. And, and there could be some truth to that statement. Only God is the judge. Rendering a verdict on another Christian's spiritual condition is not our prerogative. It's God's prerogative. And when we try to play God in that way, we are usurping a role that is not ours. Actually, it's the height of arrogance, isn't it? So, the principle of inappropriate usurping. It's just fun to say, kind of. Then there's number four. The principle of God's acceptance. God's acceptance. I love this. Whether a person's faith is weak or strong. Paul doesn't condemn those whose faith is weak. He just acknowledges it. Whether their faith is weak or strong, whether their conscience allows them very little freedom or a lot of freedom, whether they abstain or whether they partake in order to please God, Paul is contending that in Jesus Christ, God accepts us all. That's good news. Everyone who has faith, whether it's weak faith or strong faith, the Lord receives, welcomes, accepts all of His children because of Christ. Regardless of our level of spiritual maturity, whether our faith is weak or strong. So if God accepts them, what's the point? We should accept them. 
Yes, even that brother who has a different conviction than you, even that sister who has a different opinion, holds a different opinion than you hold. Because he says, for God has accepted him. To despise that person, to exclude exclude her from your circle because they drink socially or because they have a tattoo or because they don't homeschool their kids, that is to be unlike God, is what he's saying here. God accepts them. Who are you to exclude them? Just because they have a different conviction than you in a gray area matter. God's acceptance. How about this fifth one? This is interesting. The principle of opposite choices, same motive. Say that with me. Opposite choices, same motive. We need to get this. This is, this is challenging for some of us. This is renewing our minds. This is renewed thinking like Paul's been talking about. This is a mature mindset that some of us really need to grow into because Paul is contending that two Christians who hold different convictions in gray area issues can make the polar opposite choice and yet both be seeking to honor God. Where do you get that? From where it says, He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. Notice that Paul doesn't scold the one and commend the other. He says both are right to stick with their convictions and live by it. As long as their motive is to please God and honor God by their choice. There is no absolute right or wrong in these gray area matters. What's most important is not eating or not eating. What's most important is not tattooing or not tattooing. What's most important is that we do what we do before the Lord out of a deep desire to please Him and honor Him. Amen? That's what's most important. To honor the one who redeemed us by His blood, who purchased us, whom we belong to. So opposite choices, same motive. And I would add this, I believe this principle could also pertain to a believer's personal growth and maturity over time. And what I mean by that is that some Christian people find that their convictions have changed, their own convictions have changed from earlier years in their life. So you take someone who got saved out of a particular lifestyle, like Jesus rescued them out of a particular lifestyle. And so when they were a young Christian, they formed some convictions about things they wouldn't do because in their mind, it's like, that's what he saved me out of. Why would I go back to that? And so they were convinced that maybe getting a tattoo or going to a bar or even with some people playing cards would be sinful for them because of the environment that Jesus brought them out of. And they were bound by their conscience to avoid those things. But then in some cases, years later, or maybe even decades later, the same person having acquired more learning, more knowledge, more understanding of God's word, a deeper faith, they might change their convictions from what they themselves held 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Because they now believe that just like they honored the Lord back then by abstaining, they can honor the Lord now by partaking, by enjoying the freedom that they have in Christ. So again, opposite choices, same motive, to honor and please God. Is this stretching you any? It's kind of counterintuitive, but what Paul is saying in this chapter is that who are the, who are the weak in faith? Who does he call weak in faith? 
It's the ones who can't participate, whose conscience bothers them. But it's the strong in faith who know they have freedom in Christ to enjoy all of God's gifts. Later on in chapter 15, we'll see that Paul counts himself among the strong in faith with freedom in Christ to enjoy the gifts of God's creation to the glory of God. So I don't know if that's different from how you were taught or how you've been thinking about things, but God wants to renew our minds, right? And bring us into alignment with the truths of his gospel. Principle six, the principle of servanthood focus. Servanthood focus. And what that principle tells us is that every Christian person has been bought with a price. Right? If you're a Christian in the room today, if you're a follower of Jesus, it's because he bought you. We, we, we sing to Jesus as our redeemer, don't we? And to redeem means to purchase out of slavery, to pay a price to purchase someone out of slavery. And as believers, we believe that Jesus shed his blood, which is the purchase price of our freedom from slavery to sin. And we love him for it, don't we? We worship him for that. As a result, we belong to him. He purchased us. We are his servants. Whether we're weak in faith or whether we're strong in faith, Jesus Christ has become our owner, our master. And so the focus of our lives now is Godward, not striving for the approval of people, not being people pleasers. We live our lives now, don't we? Primarily before the Lord, to please the Lord. Paul wrote, if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. This principle tells us that we exist to worship and serve the Lord who bought us. We're His now, and, and what's uppermost in our mind should be what will please Him. Not what will other people think. Really not even what we think. Do you know the Bible says, if you're a Christian, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. It's His. Principle of servanthood focus. We, we focus on the fact that we are the servants of Jesus. As a result, we make choices. We strive to make choices that will please and honor our master, our king. And then finally, I love this one. The principle of gospel prominence. Gospel prominence. This got my attention because when I read verse 9, it sure seemed like Paul was saying that in the church, small little interpersonal squabbles, those little conflicts that people have between each other, those are overcome by focusing on huge gospel truths. Look again how he finishes this section of verse 9. For this very reason, he wrote, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. I love this. Paul's preferred method of dealing with interpersonal conflicts in the church was to just overwhelm them by placing them in the shadows of the massive Everest-like truths of the gospel. I mean, I guess Paul could have just said, 
hey, you people, I'm hearing that you're having some problems and some conflicts there. Can't we all just get along? He could have said that. But instead, what does he do? He intentionally brings to their attention the most important truth of the universe. Jesus Christ, your Lord, died. And he was raised to life, came back to life, he says, so that he might be the Lord, your Lord. Your Lord. Whether you live or die, he is the one whose authority each one of you are called to live under and please with your life. Don't you love that? The gospel right-sizes things. It puts other things in their proper place in their proper perspective it's as if he's saying this if you want to be passionate about something don't be passionate about whether it's right or wrong to eat meat or observe feast days or drink wine those things pale in comparison to what really matters in life don't get at odds with people don't divide don't break the beautiful fellowship that jesus has created through his blood over little things like that Jesus is your Lord, and Jesus is that person's Lord if they're in Christ. And even if they die, without ever changing their convictions to match your convictions, He's still going to be their Lord because there's an eternity to follow where people live forever, and in eternity, stuff like that isn't going to matter one little bit. Later on, we'll hear Paul say this, The kingdom of God, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Isn't that good? He's like, look, get, get, get a grip on this, people. Let's put things in their proper perspective. Whether you eat meat or choose not to eat meat, in the grand scheme of things, it's just not that important. Certainly not worth dividing over, not worth breaking fellowship over. Not worth judging people over, looking down, despising people over. Jesus is your Lord. He reigns here and he reigns in eternity. He's the Lord of now and he's the Lord of forever. Lord of the living and Lord of the deceased who have entered into that other realm. That's what matters most. So focus on that. Those are the big truths that bind us together despite the little differences that we sometimes have. You've heard of that phrase, right? Don't major on the minors and minor on the majors. This is what Paul is saying here. Keep things in their right perspective. We agree on the big truths of the gospel. Let's not let those little picky-uni things divide us. Can you say amen to that? Well, this is good stuff from Romans 14, isn't it? Helping us to grow up in Christ, to love one another with a love that's mature we're going to explore this more next week, and really there's a lot at stake for a church body of believers like us. There's a lot at stake for the impact in our city. I mean, how many non-believing people have gotten turned off to Jesus and Jesus' church because of the squabbles inside the church that they heard about? Over stupid stuff. I read about a church that split over the color of choir robes. Seriously? I mean, in the grand scheme of things, is lime green that important, you know? 
our testimony, our witness to the world is at stake in how we love each other. We must grow up in our faith. We must become mature. And I believe that we will. I believe that we will. 